Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. From Psalm 146. Praise ye the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, will I praise the Lord. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that therein is, which keepeth truth forever. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray. Overthrow, O Lord, with thy mighty right hand our ways that go down into sin. Lift us up when we are fallen. Loose us when fettered by our evil works. Love us when thou hast made us righteous. And make us persevere forever in thy love. Wherefore we say glory be to the Father, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is. Glory be to the Son, who is King forevermore in Zion. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, who defendeth the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we continue to work our way through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, and we've been studying what Scripture says about the one divine essence. So uh, let's read this catechism uh, together, and then we'll look at the divine name power. So I'll, I'll ask the question, you can respond with the answer. So, Catechism question four. What is God? God is a spirit. Very good. So what does it mean to say that God is power? That God is power? <laughs> to say that God is power is to confess that God is the omnipotent one. He is, as he reveals to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, God Almighty, the Lord Almighty. God's power is beyond measure. It is infinite and unending. By his own essence, he created the cosmos and sustains everything in it. <clears throat> the movement of sun, moon, and stars, the violence of hurricanes and tsunamis, the invisible forces of wind and gravity, the ferocity and strength of lions and leopards, behemoth and leviathan. There is no power in heaven or on earth or under the earth that does not first derive and participate in God's own power. For as it says in Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And again in Romans 13.1, they're speaking of civil government, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. 
While we can appreciate and tremble at the power of nature, of being tossed to and fro in the ocean, or being caught in an open field during a thunderstorm, these powers are all as nothing to the God who created them. God's strength is beyond strength. His power is never diminished nor increased by use or rest. Unlike you and I, God does not need to go to the gym to stay in shape. He does not need to eat protein. He does not need to get eight hours of sleep to be at his best. God never tires. He never grows weary. His strength never fails. As Jesus says in Luke 18, 27, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. God's power is most especially revealed in his ability to pardon sins. Sins that deserve an everlasting punishment and sinners that justly deserve death as wages for our actions. In the gospel, God reveals himself to be not only a powerful king, but a merciful one. A king who wields his infinite power to save sinners and raise them from the dead. In Christ, God gives his very power unto us so that we can be assured that if God be for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, if you belong to him, who can be against you? If we know that, then we can say with the Apostle Paul what he declares in Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is power, and that means if you are His, that nothing can ever separate you from His love. To contemplate these things should remind us of our need to confess our sins, so as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. These are the words of God. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will, be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. And he straightly charged him, and forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, 
but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much, and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus, for his piety, his prayer, and his power to heal. And we ask that just as uh, Jesus touched the leper and healed him, so also you would touch us and heal us from all our iniquities. For we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to finish chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel. This is the sixth sermon in our series, and so far uh, we have covered a lot of ground. Um, As we have seen, uh, Mark's Gospel moves at a rapid pace. Everything is said to happen immediately. Immediately this, immediately that. And so what might take, you know, four chapters for Matthew or Luke to cover, uh, Mark just goes over in a couple of verses. This is, of course, intentional and is meant to portray Jesus in a certain light. Mark knows there will be other gospel accounts that you can read. He knows uh, the other gospel writers. But his task, Mark's task, is to set forth Jesus as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Mark wants to emphasize that Jesus is a new David, a new Elisha, a new Joshua one who leads God's people into the promised land of the kingdom. One of the uh, other major emphases in Mark's gospel is uh, the spiritual warfare in Christ's ministry. Uh, Mark highlights this more than any of the other gospels. You think, uh, so far, if we just uh, restrained ourselves to chapter 1, you know, who is the enemy in uh, Mark's gospel so far? Well, it's, it's all of these demonic forces, right? He goes and he fights Satan, then he's casting out devils, and he's, there's just like devils in every uh, you know, next paragraph. So uh, Mark kind of uh, unveils the heavens for us, and he, he shows us what the Apostle Paul speaks about in Ephesians 6. Uh, he says there, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So Mark wants us to see kind of the heavenly overview of what Jesus is doing as he's, you know, he's just a man walking around Galilee, right? He's on, he's on the, uh, in these lake towns by Capernaum, and he is waging by his preaching spiritual warfare. Wherever he goes, this is what the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom does. Light enters and the darkness cannot comprehend it. As we look at uh, our text this morning, verses 35 to 45, uh, you'll notice this is a continuation of what took place the day before. So if you remember uh, the sermon last week, we saw that Jesus enters the synagogue on a Sabbath day. He casts out a demon, and then after church, they go over uh, to Peter's house for dinner, and there he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then uh, when the sun goes down on the Sabbath day, the entire city is said to gather at the door of Peter's house, desiring to be healed. And uh, I didn't mention this last week, but uh, if you think about a crowd gathering at a door, uh, 
that's often a very bad thing, right? This is, this is Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the first places you see this, and it does not go well for those people, and it's a, a very precarious place to be. So Mark is kind of drawing these hints to other stories in the Bible and then kind of giving them a little, a little twist. That's what we're going to see throughout this entire uh, gospel. So uh, they're hanging out at Peter's house after church. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. The sun goes down, and then all these people uh, start coming, and Jesus uh, is casting out devils, healing all of these people that come to him. So this is a, a long day, a long night of ministry, and we presume that he crashes um, at Peter's house afterwards. Then, uh, turning to our text, we'll start to, to work through this together. Uh, in verse 35, it says this, And in the morning... Rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. So here we have a hint and foreshadowing of the resurrection. Right? Did, you, did you catch it? Jesus is said to rise up, anastas. This is the same word that he's going to use uh, at the end of the gospel to describe his resurrection. And he rises early in the morning. And guess what day it is? Right? If Yesterday was the Sabbath, he sleeps, he gets up, it's, it's a Sunday, right? Uh, the Jewish Sabbath was Saturday, Jesus is resurrected early on Sunday mar morning, and Mark uses that same language here that he will use at the end of the book when he says uh, in chapter 16, Now when Jesus was risen, Anastas, early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. So that's where this whole gospel is pushing towards uh, this end when he is risen, and notice what Mark draws our attention to at that resurrection scene, right? A, a woman there who he's cast out seven devils from. So uh, he rises early, he appears to a woman who he's delivered from demonic possession, and what have we just seen? He's cast out a bunch of devils, he's with a woman, he, he's in Peter's house, he's, he's rising early. So uh, you can actually... Uh, outline the, the gospel of Mark in what, uh, what you call a chiasm. A chiasm is this uh, pattern that goes A, B, C, C, B, A. So it kind of works its way in and then works its way out. So you can imagine if you could put the whole gospel of Mark on in just like a sheet of paper, uh, it could fold in half and there would be kind of a hinge in the middle and then everything would kind of mirror itself. And so you, Mark does this. I don't I don't mention this every single week, but it's, it's all through the text, these, these hints. Uh, one I did mention to you is the gospel begins with this declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, and then, you know, if you were to look at the mirror image of it at the end, it's the Roman centurion declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. It only happens twice, and it's right there at the beginning, right there at the end, and it's going to keep working its way in, and then we'll hit kind of a hinge in, in the middle. We'll get there in, around chapter 8. So... That was free. That was free for you. Not in my notes. So, so Mark, gives us, uh, Mark gives us this foreshadowing of the resurrection here. Jesus, after a long night of ministry, rises up early, and he goes to a solitary place to pray. Uh, now, we might ask, this is uh, the Son of God. Why does Jesus do this? Uh, Jesus, of course, is the one who answers prayers. He answers prayers according to his divine nature. But in his human nature, he desires to show the disciples and us what true piety looks like. So what does it mean to go with Jesus? We're supposed to be like Peter and, and uh, James and John, these disciples following him. And you think, what does it look like to be a disciple? 
Well, it means to mortify your flesh, which uh, for many people means getting up early. This is a hard thing to do. I ministered to college students for many years, and uh, this, this is a perpetual challenge for college students, right? They stay up late, and then they pay the price in the morning. So Jesus, uh, he, he rises early, and then he seeks solitude. He seeks solitude, and he does this so that he can commune with his Father. And Mark wants us to see that if Jesus is doing this, he who is the perfect one, uh, how much more do we need to uh, get up early, seek solitude, and pray? If Jesus desired these things and he is the Son of God, how much more should we? Uh, Continuing in verses 36 to 37, it says, And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. All men seek for thee. There are many reasons why someone might seek after Jesus. If you had heard that a true prophet of God had come to your town and he had the power to heal any disease, wouldn't you go to him? Wouldn't you bring your family and friends to him? Wouldn't you want him to touch you and make your body completely well? This is the primary reason people are seeking after Jesus. This is just how we think. Someone has power. What can that power do for me? Oh, you know, it'd be nice to not have allergies anymore. You know, it'd be, it'd be nice if we didn't have to offer all these prayer requests in the service for all of the sick people. We could just take them to Jesus and then we'd be all good. This is just how human beings think. And that is how these people in Galilee are thinking. This is the primary reason they are seeking him, not because they want to enter the kingdom of heaven or receive spiritual healing, but because they want his power to do something for him. The language that Mark uses here for following and seeking after Jesus is quite rare, and in the other places that it's used, it's referred to someone hunting someone down. So this is actually the same language that is used in 1 Samuel 23, where David is hunted by King Saul. So it says there, Saul also and his men went to seek him, and they told David, wherefore he came down into a rock and abode in the wilderness of Ma'on. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'on. Now, uh, that Mark is making this connection should not surprise you, because Mark, this is his whole kind of thing in this gospel. He's portraying Jesus as David. Like David, Jesus is anointed king, but he's not yet ascended the throne. He has the power to cast out demons. David did it with his harp. Jesus does it with a word. And though he is righteous and innocent, King Saul pursues David so that he must withdraw into the wilderness. It is there in the wilderness that David writes a number of psalms, and one of them is Psalm 63. So that the heading of Psalm 63 says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, right? Same place that Jesus is. And if you know Psalm 63, what is the very first line of that prayer? It is, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. See what Mark is doing? Mark is a genius. This is what Jesus does, right? He rises early, he goes into the wilderness where David himself was hunted, and there he seeks the Lord while all men seek after him. So this is the irony that Mark is employing. He's playing with this idea of what it means to seek someone. You could seek them like Saul seeks for David, 
to kill him. Or you could seek them like Jesus, you could seek him like Jesus seeks for God because he loves him. Both of these seekings happen in the wilderness, but one, of course, is righteous and the other is wicked. So Mark is stacking these, this context so that we ask the question, you know, why do we seek Jesus? Why do all men seek after him? Why are the disciples looking for him? What do we really want from him? Is it merely physical healing and the improvement of our temporal circumstances, or does our seeking of him have eternity in view? Are we led from the healing of our bodies to the healing of our souls, from the casting out of demons to the casting off of sinful desires? Christ, of course, has the power to do both, but many people seek after him and only want one of those things from him. So what do you seek? The disciples say, all men seek after thee. And Mark purposely leaves this ambiguous so that we have to ponder this. We know that this seeking is not inherently a good thing. The crowds could be seeking him like Saul, or they could be seeking him like the psalmist seeks for God. Well, how does Jesus respond to this newfound popularity? How does he handle uh, all of these men seeking after him? It says in verses 38 to 39, And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils. Jesus, of course, knows what the people seek. And he knows the reason for the Father sending sending him to earth. He knows the purpose for the incarnation and the goal of his whole ministry. Why did Jesus come forth? He says, so that I may preach, so that I may preach. It belongs to the wise man to know and publish the truth. And Jesus, who is God's very wisdom, comes forth in order to preach. Preaching is God's instrument for salvation. It is the word proclaimed that actually cleanses and gives life. See what Jesus' word has already done in this gospel so far. And while Jesus has the power to do any kind of miracle he wants, any time he wants, he only ever does them to reinforce the truth of his preaching. Preaching is the purpose for the miracles, to bear witness and confirm his words. For Jesus, miracles are the lesser sign. They're the lesser thing to help people believe what he has to say. Whereas for them, we've got it reversed. We're impressed by the miracles, and then often don't hear what he actually has to say. This is going to be the whole point of uh, next Sunday's sermon, where we see in chapter 2, Jesus says to a bunch of unbelieving scribes, he says this to them, "Uh, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. Anyone, of course, can say, your sins are forgiven you. But uh, the forgiveness of sins is invisible. You You can't see it. It's hard for people to believe Jesus when he's going around saying this because they do know rightly that only God can actually forgive sins. And so because of their unbelief, 
Jesus says and does lesser things for them. He says, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus says elsewhere that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. It is immaturity and human frailty that needs miracles to believe in Jesus. This is why Jesus says to his disciple Thomas after his resurrection, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed. Um, That's you, right? None of us have seen him or held him with our hands, but we believe in him and we love him. It's kind of crazy, right? The Christian faith is where we love someone we've never seen before. (laughs) We love the invisible God. And Jesus says, those people who do that are the happy people. They are the blessed people. So this is why Jesus came forth to preach, to preach. And then in verses 40 to 45, Mark then tells us about another encounter that Jesus has, and this time with a leper. So verse 40, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Leprosy was one of the worst things that could ever happen to you. Uh, Not merely because of the physical pain that might be associated with it. There were many possible forms of leprosy, and some were quite minor, right? It's not like your body is is, uh, decomposing all the time. But uh, that's one possibility, but there's lesser forms. But to become a leper was to be exiled from the presence of God. It was to be basically excommunicated, right? Uh, You're cut off from society, and you're even alienated from yourself. In leprosy, your own flesh is exposed and consuming you. It says in Leviticus 13, The leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, Unclean, unclean, all the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled. He is unclean, he shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall his habitation be. Right? The life of a leper is a life of perpetual mourning. That's the wearing of the torn clothes, the disheveled hair, the covering of the mouth. All of these signify lamentation, death, and silence. Furthermore, in the history of the Old Testament, there are only two people who were ever healed of leprosy. One was Miriam, who God just struck immediately. She's unclean for seven days, then he miraculously heals her. So it's a judgment, and then he heals her. And then the other one is Naaman the Syrian. So he's not not even a Jew. One guy, Naaman the Syrian, and he was healed by, who knows who he was healed by? It's the guy who comes after Elijah. Elisha, yes. Yeah, that's what, uh, yeah, I just heard you wrong, right? <laughs> so, so we read about Elisha the prophet uh, healing uh, Naaman in 2 Kings 5. And uh, let me read this for you. It says, And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. 
So the, the story is uh, the king of Syria has Naaman, this, this great commander, and he sends a letter to the king of Israel, and he, he says, hey, I hear you have a prophet there. Could you heal uh, my commander? Okay, uh, and the king of Israel takes that essentially as a declaration of war. <laughs> it's like, you're, you're asking me to do something that, of course, is impossible for me to do, and then when I'm not able to do it, then you're going to bring your troops to my city and say, you know, I did not comply with your completely unreasonable request. So uh, the king actually tears, tears his clothes when he hears this, and then Elisha hears of this, and he says, you know, send him my way. Uh, he, Elisha, he has the double portion of Elijah's spirit, and he tells Naaman, you know, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, and when he finally, after hesitating, complies, it says he, he, he does this, and his skin becomes like a baby's skin, all right? So here's this grown man with skin like a, like a baby. So uh, that is what Elisha does, and that is really the only man we ever see another man heal, uh, heal a leper in the Bible. So who is Jesus then? Who is Jesus that this leper comes to him? He is, of course, Elisha, right? He is the God who has the power to kill and make alive. The leper has nothing else to lose, and he goes to Jesus and says, If you will, you can make me clean. Verses 41 to 42 say, And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, and said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him, and he was cleansed. Notice, he touches him, but what does Mark draw our attention to here? It's as soon as he had spoken, right? It's, it's the word that has the power. In the old world, under the old covenant, uncleanness was contagious. To touch a leper was basically to touch a corpse, and it made you unclean for seven days. So if you, if you went to a funeral, you had to bury the body, then you were just unclean for seven days. And in order to get clean again, you had to be sprinkled by water, uh, with water by a clean person on the third day and on the seventh day, and then bathe, and then wash all your clothes, and only after all of that could you come back into the camp. So for Jesus to touch this leper... And heal him was really to turn the world upside down. Where once defilement flowed and spread to anyone who touched the defiled, in Jesus, entropy reverses. Death starts running because life has entered the world. This is, of course, what was prophesied by the prophets. We read in Zechariah 13 of the days of the Messiah, it says, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Jesus is that fountain. He is this walking fountain. Wherever he goes, whoever he touches, he makes them clean. This is the beginning of a new world order, wherein Jesus is making all things new. And that fountain of cleansing still flows today. This is why Jesus says to that woman, if you believe, rivers of living water will flow forth from your heart. If you go to the fountain of cleanliness, if you come to Christ, he makes you a little fountain as well. Wherever the word is preached, Wherever uh, the gospel goes, sin and uncleanness is removed. 
This is why Paul tells husbands in Ephesians 5 to, uh, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The washing of water by the word. Um, I don't mind if you guys take notes during the sermon, but really, uh, do you take a notebook into the shower? <laughs> you, you go into the shower to, to wash your body. And that is what the worship service is, right? That's why we kneel and confess our sins. And when the word is preached, we just, you know, you don't have to remember everything. I'm not going to remember everything. You, you don't have to. But you should be believing the word, and when you believe the word, the word actually washes you and, and cleanses you. If you've ever not been to church for, you know, you, you get sick for a while, you can't go to church, you kind of feel a little, just a little off. But the preaching of the word, the power of the word, when mixed with faith in those who hear, actually cleanses our souls. In verses 43 to 45, we then have the conclusion of this scene. It says, And Jesus straightly charged him, and forthwith sent him away, and saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded, for a testimony unto them. But he went out, and began to publish it much, and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places, and they came to him from every quarter. So Jesus heals this leper, and then he commands him to keep the law of Moses as a testimony to the priests. So remember when Joe read Leviticus 14, and you guys are like, what is going on? Okay, I had him read that so we would have that full context for the cleansing of a leper. And as you know, it's quite involved, right? So First, a priest has to go outside of the camp. So this would be like a local priest, a Levite in Capernaum. So they're, they're miles away from Jerusalem. The beginning of the ritual starts outside of Jerusalem, outside of the holy place. A priest comes, he inspects you to just make sure your body is indeed healed of leprosy. If, if that is true, then you take these two living birds, you kill one of them, you pour out the blood, you dip the blood, uh, you dip the... Uh, you put the living bird into uh, the blood of the dead bird, and then it, it's let go. That's just part one of the, of the series, right? What do you have to do? Then you got to go travel to Jerusalem. You got to shave everything, including your eyebrows, right? All, all the hair off your body. You got to wash everything, and you have to bring two male lambs and one for a sin offering, one for a burnt offering. You got to do this whole ritual. Blood is sprinkled on you, then blood and oil on your, on your ear, on your right thumb, on your right big toe. It's a lot going on. And then after all of that, the priest can pronounce you clean. So just compare and contrast, right? You're a leper. And Jesus just says, be clean. That's all he does. He, he touches the man, he speaks the word, and he's clean. So of course... Um, why does Jesus then want this man to go through all that ritual? Well, he wants to do this as a testimony to the priests. If you read, if you kept reading in Leviticus 14, which maybe we will do it at some point, what comes after the ritual for cleansing people comes this ritual for cleansing houses, leprous houses. Yes, inanimate objects can get leprosy too. So there's this ritual. The priest, he comes and, in, and inspects 
the house. And he says, you know, looks like there's leprosy in these walls. All right, let's take it out, you know, scrape off the mortar, and, and you throw that in the unclean place. You quarantine it for, you know, a week. You come back, you see, is the mold gone, basically? Uh, if it's gone, all right, it's clean again. But if it's not, eventually, he comes back to, then on the third time he returns, if, if this contagion has spread and is not going away, then what do you do to the house? You tear it down and you destroy it. This leper being sent to the temple is a warning, a warning shot from Jesus. Because Jesus is coming, right? That's where the way of the Lord is going to eventually take us. He's in Galilee now. He's sending people on ahead. But he's going to come as the priest to inspect the house. He's already been in these other houses, these synagogue houses. And what does he find? He finds demons in them, right? These are the unclean people. But Jesus is eventually going to go to the temple. And what does Jesus say right before his death? He says, he's looking at the temple, the the disciples are admiring the building, and he says, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Jesus is coming. He's coming to inspect the house, and he is going to tear it down and burn it if they don't repent. In addition to commanding this man to do what Moses commanded, Jesus also commands him to say nothing to any man. This injunction against running his mouth is intended to preserve Jesus' ability to continue to minister in the cities. But because this man cannot keep it to himself, it says this story blazes abroad so that Jesus can no longer openly enter the cities. So here again, we have this great irony, this great reversal, where Jesus heals this outcast, this leper. But because of the lepers not listening to his word, Jesus is forced to change places with him. The leper can enter cities. He is now restored to society. But now Jesus is forced to live without in desert places. He's back in the wilderness. This is, of course, the gospel, right? We are all spiritual lepers. Our flesh is corrupt. It spreads to our children. It spreads to other people. We are all alienated from the life of God. When Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, this is what he's talking about. Leprosy is the visible manifestation of this. Leprosy is meant to teach us that we all have the corruption of sin and the consequences of the curse in us. And the way that God has chosen to heal us and restore us to himself is by sending Jesus to take all of that uncleanness upon himself. And then, like the goat on the Day of Atonement, he is sent outside the camp. He's alone in the wilderness. This is what Jesus is doing in Mark at the end of Mark chapter 1, and he does that for you and me. I'll close with this. Um, Mark really is a genius, and he has ordered these opening healing scenes of Jesus' ministry to actually mirror the order of events in Leviticus 10 to 16, which also mirrors the order of events in Genesis 3. So remember Genesis 3, this is the fall of humanity. After Adam sinned in the garden, God curses in this order. First, he curses the serpent. He curses the serpent with crawling upon his belly and eating the dust, and he promises that one day a seed would be born to crush his head. After he curses the serpent, he then curses the woman. 
He curses her with pain and childbearing and desire for her husband. And then third, he curses the man. And the man is cursed with toil. His work will fight him. He will be alienated from the ground, and the ground is where he shall return. Well, this is the same order that we have seen in our text. The same order in which Jesus comes to reverse the curse. First, he silences and casts out the serpent. He wars against Satan and exorcises the devils. Second, he heals a woman, Peter's mother-in-law, from burning. That's literally just what it says in the text, from a, from a burning. Itself, a symbol of desire, of the burning of the passions. And now third, he heals a man, a leper, a son of Adam who has in his body a perpetual reminder of death and separation from God. To dust you shall return. And so Mark is giving us, he's presenting Jesus as this one who comes to undo the curse, who comes to battle against the serpent and will eventually crush his head. He will die and rise to deliver his people. That is the hope of the gospel, and Christ commands all to repent and believe. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, and we ask that you who opened that fountain to the world 2,000 years ago would cause it to flow in our church, flow in us. Make us to be ambassadors of Christ, that wherever our presence goes, wherever our words go, we would speak life, healing, cleansing, truth, that we would not... Uh, uh, poison those waters, that we would uh, not bear bitter fruit from them, but that we would be wellsprings of living water to those who need it. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. Our sin in the Garden of Eden was a sin of impatience. It was the sin of trying to have a good thing before we were mature enough to handle it. Just as babies must have milk before meat, so also the human race needed to trust God that he knew what we could handle. He knew when we could handle the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here at this table, God has given us access to the most potent fruit of all, that is, the body and blood of our Lord. The Lord's Supper is a dangerous meal. In Corinth, there were people who had died or were sick because they ate of it in an unworthy manner. It is for this reason that only the baptized are welcome to this table. And of those who are baptized, God commands that all of us examine ourselves and judge rightly that we are one body together. Bread and wine will do you no good unless you receive them by faith. And when you do, and you eat and drink trusting in the Lord Jesus, he indeed promises to be present to you. So come in faith and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this, the fountain of cleansing is always opened in Jesus. And no matter how dirty or sinful or screwed up you might be, Jesus has the power to cleanse you. So go to him and he will take away your sins. Receive now the benediction. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And amen. amen. Go in peace.